A few days ago, we at Medusa received confirmation that Russia's federal censor is now requiring internet service providers inside Russia to block access to Medusa's website. We and a handful of other outlets are accused of disseminating information in violation of the law. This attack on the free press is happening because the Kremlin has something to hide, because it has more in store. Put simply, we have been banned for reporting information from sources other than the Russian state itself, particularly when it comes to the invasion of Ukraine, which Roskomnadzor, the federal censor, has made it unlawful to call either an invasion or a war. But Russia is at war with Ukraine. This war is an unprovoked act of aggression by the Russian state against the people of Ukraine. Medusa rejects any attempt to limit our freedom to report the truth about this conflict or any other subject. The Russian authorities can try to stop the public from seeing our journalism, but they will fail. We've prepared for this. Medusa has a mobile app, we have an enormous audience on social media, and we distribute newsletters over email. Our readers will also still be able to reach us through VPNs. There's one challenge for which we are not prepared, however. 90% of the donations we received came through the payment systems Stripe and PayPal. Our readers in Russia want to keep supporting us, but now their bank cards are being rejected. And economic sanctions against Russia's financial sector create serious risks for our crowdfunding there, forcing us to prepare for the worst. So we're relying especially on you, our international audience, to help sustain our work. What you should know, we're an independent publication, and we work only in the interests of our readers. Since Medusa launched in English, our website has gained millions of unique views. Our Russian language edition's audience is vastly larger still, and your support is essential to maintaining both projects. Financial uncertainty in Russia means Medusa must turn to our readers around the world. To continue our work, we turn to you. Welcome to the Naked Pravda. But it's to, you know, me as a Russianist, you know, that sounds a lot like Stalin's policy for getting out of the economic disaster of the 20s with five-year plans, uh, you, you know, state prices being set. But there are shortages because of the result of the central bank sanctions, of the SWIFT sanctions and the banking sanctions, as I was saying earlier, that essentially destroys the whole plumbing of the financial system. This is where American, in my view, geopolitical power comes from far more than whatever new plan Lockheed Martin or Missile Raytheon could come up Russia with. Russia helped the Venezuelans try to set up this cryptocurrency called El Petro a few years ago to get around U.S. sanctions on it. It currently trades at 0.0000000000000001 cents to the dollar. It's kind of a joke. Hello there, you're listening to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English Language Managing Editor. On this week's show, which is coming to you a couple of days late, my guest is Maximilian Hess, a Russian economy expert and a fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. We last heard from Max almost a year ago in April 2021 in an episode on this podcast about sanctioning Russia's sovereign debt. Now he's back to discuss the massive sanctions unleashed by the West against Russia as punishment for Moscow's brutal invasion of Ukraine. I'll keep my introduction brief. 
According to the most recent figures from the United Nations, more than 1.5 million refugees have already fled Ukraine, and there are untold more people displaced within the country. Hundreds of civilians have been killed, more than 200 schools now lie in ruins, there are whole cities encircled by Russian troops, and the situation there is dire. But today's episode of The Naked Pravda turns instead to Russia, where a looming financial collapse threatens a different catastrophe. When I sat down virtually with Max, I started with a simple question. How bad do you think it's going to get in Russia in the weeks ahead? So as things stand right now, I'm extremely concerned about the future of the Russian economy. And I'm, at least in terms of, you know, people who are out there uh, writing something about this, I may be the most concerned. And that I'm really worried that Putin is not only driving Russia back into a 1990s style environment, but into a potential economic collapse that's far worse than that. The main sanction that we've seen thus far is the sanctioning of the central bank, as well as a whole other series of restricted measures on defense, aerospace technology, particular computers and, and related processing technology that will aim to cripple the Russian industrial base. But these sanctions on the central bank, I describe as either going for the spinal cord or the jugular for the reason that in the modern political economic system with free floating currencies like Russia has, central banks sit at the heart not only of a sovereign's processing of its own payments and debts, uh, Russia at least nominally has more reserves than debts, but of course a lot of those uh, reserves are now frozen as a result of these sanctions, but also simply because the central bank acts as that provider of currency uh, and liquidity and last resort. We've seen this in Russia with, for example, if it wasn't for the central bank's ability to engage in some of these uh, market practices, and in my opinion, a little bit of shenanigans as well, uh, they wouldn't have been able to rescue Rasnev the way that they did in 2014. They wouldn't have been able to bail out the banks that uh, Russia then bailed out a few years uh, after that, after some other market shenanigans. And now they won't be able to do any of those things, and they also won't be able to provide uh, liquidity and, and cash to Russian corporates engaging in foreign exchange. Uh, that'll eventually cause huge issues and potential panic delays, even for the basic things that we have seen still ongoing, such as European gas price purchases. I also think the Russians are looking to respond with their own steps of economic warfare, a series of selective defaults. There have been reports over the last few hours, I haven't confirmed them, of uh, halt to the export of uh, fertilizer products. Of course, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, the former president and prime minister, was able to threaten or came out and threatened on Twitter, uh, you know, $2,000 per thousand cubic meter gas prices for Europe for the foreseeable future, which would be in line with the all-time high, and which I think just yesterday we got back to a market price uh, around there. So, you know, this is really a, a full series of steps to the economic war. I'm really concerned for Russia because Putin has absolutely obliterated the market credibility, and I, I won't bore you with all the sort of theories about government debt and the like, but you know, nobody's going to want to borrow or lend money to Russia for the foreseeable future. Nobody's going to want to put money in Russia. And Russia is even in a more difficult position because of the fact that it has to deal with key commodities, the ones that their waivers are on, for dollars. Hydrocarbons are largely priced in dollars. Now, there have been some discussions from, uh, you know, certainly academically, uh, far more renowned and, in my view, smarter people than myself, such as Adam too, is mooting on Russia's ability to engage in mass stimulus to undertake a uh, response to this. You know, I think something like that is maybe possible, certainly not immediately with interest rates spiking. I think we're going to see yet further interest rate spikes from the central bank and even deeper collapse of the ruble. The reason it hasn't collapsed even further right now is because of the difference between unrealized and realized gains. 
you know, once the Russian markets are sort of opening again, we'll see even more pay uh, coming there through the, through the banks. Can you can you can you explain? So right now, they're the the stock exchange is closed, or it has been closed all week. It's going to remain closed for a few days more. Can you explain exactly what what is not happening? Because obviously, the the currencies, I understand it, is still fluctuating, but the the stocks are not trading. So, what's the difference exactly there with the one moving and the other not? Sure. Well, the, the stock market is completely frozen, so you can't buy in and out of uh, Russian stock positions. That's really just delaying the realization of losses. I mean. Uh, you know, those those markets, when they do reopen, if they do reopen, will crater. We saw a similar situation in Russia in 1918, which is the sort of horror parallel that I've been drawing, but the Russian stock market- Did you say, did you say 1918? Yes, 1918, when the Bolsheviks closed okay. the markets. And they never reopened, obviously, until uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that's honestly what I'm more worried about than anything now, because they can essentially just expropriate those shares and say they're worthless and we're using them to fight for the state and with the rhetoric. It's come out of the Kremlin. I think it's possible. Now, you know, going back to this sort of stimulus idea, they can print tons of rubles, but the reality is, is that Russia and Russians don't want rubles and you don't have monetary sovereignty without people wanting your own currency. And we've seen that by the fact that they haven't demanded for, for example, oil and gas payments uh, to be made in rubles and they're unlikely to. Now, Daniela Gabor, an academic over here in the United Kingdom, um, who's you know excellent on monetary theory and a lot of these government issues, she's been talking a little bit about, oh, well, you know, to what extent can effectively Russia go back to a planned economy with price settings and the like to respond to this? And uh, I would defer to her on whether that's even possible in a 21st century, hyper-globalized, free, you know, normally free-floating exchange rate uh, political economy. But it's to, you know, me as a Russianist, you know, that sounds a lot like Stalin's policy for getting out of the economic disaster of the 20s with five-year plans, uh, you, you know, state prices being set and like, and, you know, eventually that did manage to reindustrialize Russia, but it was a brutal, horrible and disastrous period for many people's economic livelihoods in addition to their, you know, their very lives. And I'm worried that, you know, that is the kind of economic model that the Kremlin may be looking at, and all of this entails a economic collapse on the scale that hasn't been seen before. We have some similar recent sanctions actions with Iran and Venezuela, but they were nowhere near as integrated into the global economy as Russia was. And of course, you know, I, I love both the Iranian and the Venezuelan people as well as the Russian people, but for a Russianist to fall to be living to say an Iranian or a Venezuelan living standard. That is a gigantic collapse, you know, far further than the collapses those countries at least went through in the immediate future. Venezuela is, you know, a whole other issue. I'll skip going into that. So I'm still struggling. I mean, I, I understand living standards falling. Like, that makes sense to me. But in terms of because the the markets are closing off, why does that why does that mean that they're going to have to go to a planned economy? Exactly. Is, why can't they have market economics within Russia? Well, because the strongest, you know, I mean, the simplest way to answer that is because you have a market economic system within Russia where there's far more demand for foreign currency and dollars than there is for anything else. Then it's very hard to have any kind of price stability. You have huge issues with inflation. You have low consumer confidence. Nobody wants to invest. Nobody wants to put their own money towards potential future capital generating projects. So the state essentially has to do so and has to force prices on people. We've already seen the government essentially bar people from taking 
money abroad. I'm skeptical that that applies to Putin's closest friends <laughs> and, and uh, oligarchs already have plenty of money abroad, but simply you can't have a, a market economy, even a closed one, in which the uh, main demand is for capital to get out of that economy. I was just hearing from a friend, actually, who managed to get out of of Russia and is now safe beyond its boundaries. But uh, this friend still has family in Russia, and some of those family members are in need of insulin, and they're now finding that the pharmacies don't have it anymore because it was an imported insulin, and they're now going to need to rely on a domestic insulin that hopefully doesn't have too many foreign ingredients, and that they we're going to... I mean, can you ex- describe for me how how common are shortages like that going to be? Because that's the kind of shortage that I would imagine it's going to kill people right away. That's no, no that's um, you know a very important point you bring up. There hasn't been talk of sanctioning basic foodstuffs or medicines and the like uh, from the West to Russia. It's about technologies. Uh, you know, I think it's very clear to say that the, the West itself does not say you can't uh, export insulin to Russia, for example. But there's there are shortages, apparently. But there are shortages because of the result of these central bank sanctions, of the SWIFT sanctions and the banking sanctions, as I was saying earlier, that essentially destroys the whole plumbing of the financial system. So, you know, other areas where I expect we'll see shortages are you know, even things like, you know, totally unrelated. But for example, I think there'll be a lot of volatility in the diamond market just because of how important Russia is for diamonds. And that's all run through the state and various partners won't want to process those or hold off for a while. So, you know, th- this has the ability to cause huge disruption in the short term, including for far more important things like medicines that help keep people alive. I believe that over the you know sort of medium term, as things settle out in this kind of sanctions environment, we should be looking towards the kind of carrots that, you know, make sure that those things are still ongoing, make it clear that this isn't targeted against the Russian people, but against the Kremlin. But I do worry a little bit about sort of the diplomatic approach there. Of course, those arguments when it came to Iran and Venezuela, many people made them, and particularly in the U.S., um, partisanship and polarization meant that there wasn't really a lot of uh, hearing for them. And these are the unintended consequences of sanctions, but the ones that happen when you essentially blow up a country's financial plumbing. So, you know, I, 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 I'm worried that we're going to see a lot more issues like that. And without, you know, bringing attention to it and say, you know, we need to make sure that this is just as much of the, as much a part of the package as the pressure also showing that we're working on and preparing for the off ramps. But so far, I mean, you know, it's still very early days, but so far my indications are and, and past precedent is leads me to worry that that's somewhere where people who care about Russia and, you know, affecting change in Russia need to raise pressure uh, on the U.S. and Western governments. And I count myself amongst those. Is it possible to, I mean, is, is, as I understand it then, is the kind of, is the, the policy ostensibly about saying to Russia, we're, you're not going to get iPhones and you know, basically, we're saying we're saying the West's messages. We're taking away all the frou frou nice things that you get from being 
members of the world economy, but you're still going to have food. You're still going to have medicine. We're not trying to hurt you. We're just trying to make you feel less comfortable. Or, or is it more than that? Because I mean, are sanctions essentially like collective punishment? And if that's the case, like what's the message exactly of cutting them out of the system? I think the intention of sanctions is not to be collective punishment, but a bit of the result of it is, especially because companies will react in their own way and are usually far more hesitant in this kind of environment to undertake any activity. So, you know, some of the Western companies that have pulled out, you know, like here, like, I mean, you know, they'll have issues processing their own payments. The Russian capital controls will stop them from being able to take any potential profits that they make out. But, you know, they're not doing that because sanctions actually demand it. But this sort of sanctions environment means that you want to get ahead of it before uh, it becomes even more of a problem. Now, an issue that we have with, you know, policy coordination is that if we, is, you know, if Russia says we're going to, you know, withdraw from Ukraine or whatever, I'm not saying that I expect that. I don't think the sanctions will coerce Russia into doing anything like that. But, you know, the, 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 you can't then tell to IKEA, their BP, which is pulled out of its, you know, Rosneft uh, stake, that they have to go back. That's very different. So, you know, one of the sad realities is that it affects all that is collective punishment. You know, that being said, I think that the reason why it's so important diplomatically and for sanctions to be an effective policy toolkit that we go and, you know, make clear that we're doing effort to get things like insulin in or at least, you know, alleviate those two horrible disasters. I'm not saying, you know, I certainly don't think the Italian, you know, lobbying for an exemption to still sell Prada bags into Russia is something we should be concerning our time with. But I do think if we do it on those, you know, humanitarian issues, it does show that uh, you know, help show to the Russian people who will be facing a barrage of Kremlin propaganda telling them that this is aimed at destroying their economic livelihoods, that it's actually aimed at making clear that, you know, this was a choice that we telegraphed, that we said these kind of sanctions was a result for an invasion of Ukraine. The invasion was so wanton and egregious, we had to go even beyond, you know, what was telegraphed as the, you know, the initial escalatory steps and that it is Vladimir Putin, Vladimir Putin made this choice for the Russian people. He has chosen to undo the market economy, to plunge them back into autarky and to make Russia an economic pariah on the level of Iran and Venezuela. How do you think that's going to play out? Oh, you know, that's the million dollar question. I mean, I like my, I think more than a million. <laughs> yeah, true, like a tr true. Tr several trillion, I think. True. I mean, you know, the, the, the reality is in the short term, there's going to be, you know, losses almost everywhere. I think any uh, investor holding Russian paper, um, whether that be credits or, or stocks, uh, has effectively lost their position. Uh, there have been some talking about buying a dip in certain uh, Russian assets in uh, the last few days. I mean, uh, what, is, what does that mean exactly? That means, you know, when Russian you know, equities are, you know, that are traded in the West, those are mostly, you know, been kicked off the stock exchange. But, you know, say one that we've seen now is there have been, you know, reports that JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs are helping some hedge funds buy Russian debt that's now, you know, trading at, at a very low price, which means the ultimate reward, if you hold it and it pays out, is a lot higher uh, debts. And Where can they even buy it? Well, I mean, you know, you can still, there have been waivers, for example, on the new sovereign debt. So, you know, like to, so Russia, you can still technically buy Russian sovereign debt on the secondary market. We haven't imposed the secondary sanctions ban yet. And so Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan, they'll be buying those on behalf of certain, you know, funds or investors trying to take that position. I mean, I'll be waxing up. Can you do that in the, in the United States or do you have to like go to? Yes. I mean, uh, my understanding is you could still do it in the United States. Okay. Again, not in all financial instruments, only in certain ones. You'd, right. you'd, you'd need to be working with a lawyer. This is 
Uh, but what I'm saying is I definitely don't advise anybody to do that. You know, um, <laughs> I will be waxing up the world's smallest violin for all these people who uh, take huge losses from that. Because as I said, I expect, you know, strategic defaults from, from the Russians as well to try to, you know. And so what does that mean exactly? What, so you, is that, that was, if I understand, you said that was one of the retaliations they can, they can inflict? So for example, I mean, there's a lot of very complicated ones with, you know, financial engineering clauses they've put into debt instruments and the like that. The most simple one I'll give you is Nord Stream 2, right? So Nord Stream 2 was fine, was financed, uh, was originally going to take equity finance from five European energy companies. Those five European energy companies were then blocked from investing in the project as equity partners by the, the Polish uh, regulators, saying it was a monopoly decision, um, saying they have too much market power. So this was in, you know, about four or five years ago now. So they then went and restructured their partnership with Gazprom and Nord Stream 2 to 950 million euro loans each. Uh, you know, the companies are Wintershell, uh, uh, RWE Dea, Uniper, Shell, uh, and OMV, uh, OMV, the Austrian um, uh, energy company. And so each of these have given $950 million to Gazprom to fund this. I mean, now with uh, Nord Stream 2 being blocked, their chances of getting a single cent of those 950 million back from Gazprom are approximately zero. So do those companies now go bankrupt or? No, I mean, you know, Shell is not going to be affected by a 950 million uh, euro loss that significantly, especially, really? while the, <laughs> especially while they're dumping all their, you know, positions in Russia as well that are causing even larger losses. Like, I mean, okay. for better or worse, you know, uh, oil majors are still majors, right? They can handle this kind of stuff. Uh, one of the interesting, okay. you know, consequences there is that, for example, Uniper has a line of credit with the German government still from quasi bailout it got in response to the gas price spikes last year and uh, some of the COVID disruption. Uh, so, you know, they could still tap that line of credit and borrow from the German government. We might have to see a lot more bailouts like that or lines of credit from governments to European um, gas and energy firms, which, you know, then results in some more hard currency, ultimately ending up with Gazprom as well, but these European corporates weaken. Now, I don't want to say that like Russia and the West, in particular in the US, their ability to engage in geoeconomic warfare, it is not a situation of mutually assured destruction like you know, nuclear warfare or even one of, you know, potential comparable forces, like some would argue, you know, the, the land military capability. The entire global financial system, through a series of fascinating mistakes from leaving the Bretton Woods to the pause and the will of the courts, has ended up entirely benefiting the U.S. And this is where American, in my view, geopolitical power comes from far more than whatever new plane Lockheed Martin or Missile Raytheon could come up with. And it is our ability and the fact that every geopolitical crisis around the world seems to make the dollar stronger, as we've seen in this case as well. And so, you know, Russia's ability to fight back is, is quite limited on a, on a systemic level. You know, we, I'm sure we'll see tons of creative things. My favorite is the Russians helped the Venezuelans try to set up this cryptocurrency called El Petro a few years ago to get around U.S. sanctions on it. It currently trades at 0 0.000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000
engaged in geoeconomic warfare in response is China, which of course has, unlike the US, which kind of ended in this position of dollar hegemony kind of by mistake, China's intentionally trying to build up a, a remnant based world and to be able to challenge that with its own financial infrastructure, ranging from credits to arbitration institutes to subjects for an entirely different podcast. I'm also not a China expert, but I would say is as a non-China expert, what's surprising to me is how reticent China has been to offer support on these key matters so far. So the most important one was, I guess, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and the New Development Bank, formerly known as the BRICS Bank, which of course was set up just after Crimea in the summer of 2014 uh, as kind of a FU to the Western global financial system. They have both said they won't be issuing new loans in Russia. And while neither of them is a major creditor in Russia as it is, I mean, one that shows how sort of ineffective these programs were already after 2014 to create their own official uh, lenders to challenge things like the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the World Bank and the IMF, which the Russians hate. At least the Kremlin hates, sorry. Many Russians have bad memories of it too from the 1990s, but they, you know, there, there are different reasons there. And, uh, so the, the, we saw that at NDB, the former BRICS bank, now New Development Bank, their statement they put out even said, we intend to comply with all applicable international regulations, which, you know, for a four sentence statement was a quite a strong signal to me, basically saying, you know, we're at least prepared to consider complying with Western sanctions here. And that leaves Russia really in the lurch. And so my, it's very early. China may decide that, to take the complete opposite approach, but Right now, what's so interesting to me from you know, the China angle is they seem to be taking the approach that Russia's wanton action in Ukraine and its likely response to these sanctions and the power of these sanctions, that China right now views Russia more as a threat to its ability to challenge Western hegemony than it does as an opportunity to weaken Western hegemony. And whether that opinion stays that way, changes or reverses, could have huge economic impacts on, on Russia's well-being as well as on how long and how far-reaching this geoeconomic uh, conflict is going to become. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show with Maximilian Hess, a Russian economy expert and fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, we discuss the projected impact of Western sanctions on the Russian economy and on the daily lives of ordinary Russians. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English language show, and I hope you'll recommend us to your friends or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Also, if you value Medusa's reporting, whether in English or Russian, please consider making a donation at support.meduza.io to help sustain our work. Recurring pledges help more, but we'll take whatever you can spare, obviously. Thank you for listening and come back soon. Call